Nga mihi nui ki a koutou. Ko Sir George Seymour me Randolph, nga maka. Ko te awa kairangi te awa. Ko Fuji me Rumitaka, nga maonga. Ko Ngāti Pākehā ahau, ingari ko Aotearoa me hapana kainga noho. Ko Kathy Shepard tōku ingoa. Nō reira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Good morning. It's 10 years since I was speaking here last. It's, a lot has changed in that, um, in that time, in the last 10 years since I was talking. I'm Cathy, and I'm delighted to be here this morning talking with you all. Part of the introduction that I gave there talks about who I am as a person, and I've been, my family came to New Zealand in 1850 on two of the four, first four ships under Christchurch. But Unlike my face, a lot of my life I've spent in Japan, where I was born, and so I live in sort of two separate worlds. Just a little bit of introduction about that. Today, I'm going to be talking about Philippians, Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11. And it's the first time that we're starting into this book, and so I thought it would be a good idea to start with where Philippians, where it came from, like where it was as a book, who wrote it, give that sort of introduction. The next thing, also whereabouts Philippi actually is, and a little bit of history about that particular city in the world. The next thing that we'll do is we'll actually go through the verses in Philippians that I've got to talk about, and then I'll pick out particular things in there and show the relevance uh, that I've experienced in my life about those things. And I hope that some of those things will be useful to you. So here we go. So this is where Philippi is. It's a little city, or it's a city in the, um, the north of Macedonia, in the northern Greece, and it was a, a letter written by Paul while he was in prison to the church in Philippi. Now, it was written approximately 62 AD. He'd been in house arrest for two years in Rome, and he wrote it to this church that was extremely dear to him. It's a very, very personal letter. It was written so about 10 years, and it was taken back to, uh, back to Philippi, not using the Roman postal service, as Paul often did with some of his other letters, but by, um, with a man called Epaphroditus. And he was a leader in the Philippian church who had ended up assisting Paul with his ministry in Rome. Uh, okay, one of the things about the church in Philippi is that there were women involved in the church, so that was really cool. Uh, it was a church largely with a lot of Gentiles. There was not a large Jewish population in that area. So, um, but there were some Judaizers, uh, some of those Jewish legalists in that church, and so part of Philippians warns about, about that. One of the things with Paul throughout this letter, he talks about how to live a joyous Christian life. He talks about the importance of joy that is, is, that is in the experience of being a Christian, of living this Christian life. And I think that that is something that I can really attest to in my life, that we can have this experience of joy from being a Christian despite all of the hard times and all of the challenges that life often has for us on the way. So it's about that secret of being content. So let's have a little bit of a look at where Philippi is, and I found this really cool picture on the internet because we don't often know what these cities used to look like. So, you know, often we see the photos of the, of the uh, ruins and that sort of stuff, but this was a really, really neat photo. So it's located in northeastern Greece in a place called Macedonia, and it was already ancient. It was already an ancient city by the time Paul arrived there, 
And when Paul got there, it was about 49 CE or 49 AD. But this city was around from the 4th century BC. And it was occupied by the Thracians. In 356 BC, Philip II of Macedon, the, Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, uh, he took over the city and he named it after himself. He eventually established it as a military stronghold in order to protect the lands he had already acquired, and there were nearby gold mines there. Now, gold then was a very important thing, as, as it is now as a sort of form of richness. Uh, in 168 BC, Philippi became part of the Roman Empire. When the latter defeated the Persians at the Battle of Pydna, and Macedonia was divided into four districts, and Philippi was belong, belonged to that first one. What was it famous for? It was famous for one particular event. In 42 BC, Mark Anthony, who's heard of Mark Anthony? Anybody heard of Mark Anthony? A few people? Yep, and Octavian. Lots of people have heard of Octavian. He often comes up in Rob's sermons. And uh, he defeated Brutus, of et to Brutus fame, um, and Cassius, the assassins of Julius Caesar, in a battle at Philippi. And then later in 31 BC, when Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra at Actium, he assumed the name Augustus and rebuilt the city of Philippi. So it was rebuilt again then. He, re he placed retired soldiers there to ensure loyalty to Rome, and he established Philippi as a military outpost. He also gave the new colony the highest privilege obtainable by a Roman provincial munis municipality, the Ius Italicum. Colonists could buy, own, or transfer property and maintained the right to civil lawsuits, and they were also exempt from the poll and land tax. So, there you go. There's a few interesting facts about it. So, let's get into Philippians. So, Paul and Timothy, this is verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, both of us committed servants in Christ Jesus, write this letter to all the followers of Jesus in Philippi, pastors and ministers included. We greet you with the grace and peace that comes from God our Father and our Master, Jesus Christ. And I'm reading this in the message version because it's a version that I love. It speaks to me. It gives me new insights um, into the, you know, when you change the version and you read different things. So that's why I'm choosing this particular version this morning. Every time you cross my mind, I break out in exclamations of thanks to God. Each exclamation is a trigger to prayer. I find myself praying for you with a glad heart. I'm so pleased that you have continued on in this with us, belonging, sorry, believing and proclaiming God's message from the day you heard it right up to the present. There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day Christ Jesus appears. It's not at all fanciful for me to think this way about you. My prayers and hopes have deep roots in reality. You have, after all, stuck with me all the way from the time I was thrown in jail, put on trial, and came out of it in one piece. All along, you have experienced with me the most generous help from God. He knows how much I love and miss you these days. Sometimes I think I feel as strongly about you as Christ does. So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but well, 
Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus will be proud of, bountiful in fruits of the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. So, for me, this passage is about love and that Christian journey. It talks about being real, being real as a person, as a woman, as a Christian, as a human, as a member of the human race, as a New Zealander, as a member of the global community. Standing strong in God. It talks about our emotions, our feelings. It talks about loving God. It talks about loving people. And for me, that's very much about needing to love yourself first, learning to love yourself and the person that God made you to be, and to heal from those things that have gotten to us, that have our, their claws in us through our lives. So the first little part that I want to talk about is this one here. There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish. And there was a lot of that in the songs that we've just been singing about how God is faithful. What does this mean? Do you know, all this week as I've been thinking about this thing, I've had this talking this morning, I've had the following song just running through my head and I keep bursting out into the song. Do you know that song? For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And I don't know how many times I've sung that this week because this is what it's about. Right? He knows us. He loves us. He's with us all the time. And he will keep going. And I can show you lots of things in my life about where that, um, where that has been true. And I thought I'd share the first time when I experienced this. I became a Christian when I was 15. And when I was 17, I went to Japan and I was an exchange student there. Now, even though I had been born in Japan... I didn't speak Japanese. I'd spoken it as a three-year-old, but if you don't use a language, you forget it, don't you? Yeah? So when I went back to Japan as a 17-year-old, I could say one to ten. I could say hello, goodbye. I could say it's hot. And I'd learned a very useful phrase. There is a swan in the box. <laughs> Incredibly useful phrase. My Japanese conversation teacher that I went to for six weeks made us all origami swans and little origami boxes, and we had to say, there was a swan in the box. Yeah, but it's not exactly Japanese conversation, is it? Anyway, why did I say start talking about that? So I got to Japan, and I was in an area where there were no foreigners. I lived in a Japanese family. They had no children, and they spoke no English. There were no foreigners around me. I was at school, and it was a school where um, my English teachers didn't understand what I was saying. They um, didn't speak English at that stage. You learnt English through translation. Uh, I <laughs> was not a sporty person, and so I wanted to go and learn um, tea ceremony, a cabana, those sorts of things. And my Japanese mum had organised for me to do tea ceremony classes, so once a week I was to start going to tea ceremony. And 
on my first day, it's just before the school um, year began, I had gone to meet with, um, meet with my form teacher, who happened to be an English teacher. And he said to me that I needed to choose what club I was going to do, because all Japanese high school students do clubs. And so I knew that I wanted to do something Japanese, and I now couldn't do tea ceremony because my Japanese mum had already organised it. Okay? And so I said the first thing that came into my mind from a piece of paper that I'd seen three months prior, and I said, oh, I want to do kendo. Does anybody know what kendo is? Oh, there's a few. Okay, good. Now, I had no idea, absolutely and utterly no idea what I was going to get my hand, um, what myself into. But anyway, okay, remember New Christian in a place where nobody around speaks English or there's no foreigners or anything else. Yeah, and I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm here for a year. Okay. So I um, go along to my first Kendall day on the first day of school. And I walk into this room. It's a great big um, dojo. It's got a wooden floor. And there are lots of people in it. And they're dressed in full armour. <laughs> like great big white or in blue, blue for the, um, it was a combination of blue and white um, flowing trousers, like those, the, the samurai trousers, you know, those great big trousers. And then they had short, um, shorter things on. And then they had this breastplate. And they had a, a cloth padded, a real padded thing around here. And they had um, a, a padded thing here and a grill on the front of it, metal grill, and big, um, big gloves came up your arm. And then they had these bamboo swords, right? And they're screaming at each other, and they're running towards each other and bashing each other over the, over the head while they're screaming. And I was thinking, my goodness, what on earth am I doing? But one of the things about being in Japan is that if you sign up for something, that's it. You commit it. You can't get out. And so there I am, sitting there at the beginning of the year going, my goodness, this is going to be interesting. Because this was on every day. School was six days a week. So Monday to Friday was two hours a day of kendo. Saturday was three hours. And Sunday could often be up to six hours. As we went to different schools, for, not every week, but often to other schools for practice tournaments. And through the summer holidays as well, three hours a day. Yeah, through the winter holidays as well, three hours a day. Yeah, it's very simple. Not. Anyway, so why am I telling you this and why is God faithful? Because what I had to do as part of tea ceremony and as part of um, Kendall was at the beginning and the end of every session, we had to line up in a line. We had to sit down on the floor and the teacher was in front of us and all of us were in a big long line and we had to as is very often in Japan, bowing is your, is your way of, of showing respect, it's your way of greetings and so on. And within, within the Kendall environment, you go down like this, right? Which is fine. And then we had to turn. And over on the wall over there was a shrine. And we had to do the same. And then we had to turn back and bow to the teacher again. And in tea ceremony, when I walked in that first month, 
every month there was an alcove there and there was a um, decoration on the wall in the corner in that alcove. And that first month, the scroll up on the wall was the founder of the tea ceremony, the particular group that I was, the particular style that I was learning. And again, coming into the room and going over to there and showing your respect of the alcove, the things that were there. Now, as a young Christian, that screwed me up totally and utterly, as you can imagine, because there was nothing that I could do about it. I couldn't say, I couldn't, couldn't explain, I couldn't do anything at all. And it was screwing me up inside. So after about six weeks, six weeks of doing that every day, right? And this was at the beginning and the end. And each time praying to God, God, right, what do I do? I'm not praying to the thing that's in there, I'm praying to you. And in the end of six weeks, I said to him, God, I can't cope with this anymore. What can I do? Please look after me through this year and take me back when I get back to New Zealand. And then I went through the year. And I know that he was with me. I got back to New Zealand on the, on the Saturday evening. On Monday evening, I went to see a friend. And it was very, very clear that that was the night that God was saying, right, you're back in New Zealand, what are you going to do? Needless to say, I said, God, I'm with you. Thank you. Thank you for looking after me, and I'm with you. And I know that he is faithful. He looked after me for that year through all those different situations and called me back to him. And I've been back to Japan many, many times since, and I've taken my children to Japan for three years. I've learned a lot, and I love that country. There are amazing Christians there as well. And, yeah, anyway. So why did I tell that story? Because that was the first time that I experienced how faithful God is. And there are many, many other stories that I could tell you of time in my life, times in my life. Many challenges that I've had with our children many really, really challenging issues with our wider family and trauma that has been there. And God has been there, and he is faithful throughout. Over the years, too, I have had doubt in my faith because of um, often things that we are told in, by people uh, and uh, by different understandings of things. And so through this journey, what I have done is I have looked to God because he is the only one that knows us. He is the only one that is faithful throughout all of this. People can always let us down. So what are two things that have been incredibly important to me through this? One of them is Psalm 139. And I don't know whether you've read it recently. But it is the most incredible psalm because we often talk about, like in that Footprints poem, for example, we often talk about where were you, God? Where were you in this? And we often try and move away from God. But this is what this verse says. This psalm says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. 
You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. We can't hide from him, can we? He knows all of us. He knows right us right into the middle. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it, Lord, completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, you know, try and hide. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light as you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. So can you see from that how much God loves you? And the thing is that he loves every single one of us. Have a look around this church. Have a look around at the people. I often do this when I'm sitting in church. I just stop and I just look around. And I look around and what I see is incredible people, all of whom are made by God. And all of you were made with a purpose. God loves you. He made you. He made you with a purpose. And he never makes mistakes. No matter how much we feel inside that we're not worthy and so on, he loves you. He made you. He made you for a purpose and he never makes mistakes. Micah 6.8 is another really short verse that has been really useful for me as I've questioned a lot of things over my life. And he said, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, moving on to the next part here. So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish, and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. What does it mean that our love needs to flourish? Not only love much, but love well. It talks about the greatest commandment being loving God and loving people. For me, loving people is about learning to see, to understand, to respect, and value that difference in others. They too are God's creations made by him for a purpose. So often we judge other people instead of trying to understand and support them. What is the most important thing in the world? It is people. It is people. It is people. People can be the most, they can give us the most joy in our lives, and they can also give us the most pain. Do you agree with that? I can see quite a few people nodding on that. We can't change other people. We can only change ourselves. 
we can learn more about ourselves and others and do our best to understand others. From so much of my work over the last 15, 20 years, so much of that work has been about knowing about emotions. And it's not something that we were taught much about at school. And here we talk about you need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. And so much of, um, this is one of the things I see in uh, people looking at Christians, and you see the words like hypocrite and all of the rest of it. And it looks like um, uh, often our words don't have the, um, it's like papering on of things. And I'm not saying that very clearly. And I think a lot of that comes back down to our understanding of emotions as people. And I know when I'm working with teachers and so on, doing the Incredible Years programs, we're talking about emotions there and the emotion words that people use. And so many of them are like happy, sad, angry. There's a little bit of frustrated. And there's not many other words that people talk about. And Brene Brown mentions the same three words, happy, sad, angry, right? And yet we have so many more emotions. And how many of you have heard things like, don't be sad? Sad, be happy. So that we spend our lives, especially as Christians, I think, we spend our lives painting a, fa a, painting a smile on our faces because we're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to be because it's Christians, you know. We're, we've got this um, amazing God that can be like a magic wand and wave everything, you know, to be all right or at least that's how it can seem sometimes. And yet underneath, we can be desperately unhappy and we can be desperately struggling with the, the things that are going on in our lives. Yeah? Okay, I don't know whether you can see that. Can you see some of those words up there? Yep, excellent. So this is a piece of paper from Riders and Elephants, and they have a deck, we've created a deck of cards called the Emotional Culture Deck. And... It is a deck that is being used, a game, if you like, that is being used to help people understand emotions. It's not just about knowing their names, way beyond happy, sad, angry, um, but also then about knowing what those emotions feel like in ourselves and also what they look like in others. And then it's about knowing, okay, what do we do with them? Because, you know, if we're feeling sad don't be sad, it's not going to help. But actually, when we are sad, what can we do to move through it? Because when we know our emotions, then and we know what to do with them, and we name them, then we can move through them, right? But when we have that emotion, and we don't want to feel it because it's really uncomfortable, and we squash it down inside us, it stays there and it festers, right? And over the years, it becomes harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And then it erupts. And it's really damaging, damaging for the people, for that particular person, and often for the people around them. So going back to this is about knowing about your feelings. What I'd like you to do is to look at that particular group of words that are up on the thing and think back over the last week. So last Sunday right through to this Sunday. And what is one emotion that best describes how you have felt over the last week?
difficult one. This might be a little bit dangerous, but have a little chat to the person next door to you about that word and why you feel that word. Okay, you've got one and a half minutes, 90 seconds. Okay, are you ready for the next? Right, try it again. Choose one. Find one that best describes how you felt this last week. So many to choose from. Three or four weeks ago, I spent a week feeling every single one of these emotions. It was a very hard week. It really helped to be able to uh, put a word on it. And I felt incredibly supported. Okay, got one? Have a chat with the person next door to you about why. Why you felt this week. Okay. So, how was that? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's uncomfortable thinking about those, those more challenging emotions, if you like. And yet they are a part of who we are as people. Some of those words are so similar to each other, and yet they are slightly different. And there is huge power for us as people, knowing the names of each of them and what they feel like and being able to identify those strategies to be able to move through them. What that ability gives us as people is the ability to be authentic, right? To be real. And people in this world are craving authenticity. They're craving Christians, they're craving, they're craving people, they're craving Christians to be real about what it is to be a person, what it is to have challenges, what it is to, to be human in this world. 
okay? And we have a real advantage because we know that God loves us. We know that we were created for a purpose. We know that he never makes mistakes. And we feel these things. Pretty cool, eh? Okay. So, I'm going to go back to this one. Choose one for this week. What do you want to feel for this week? You don't have to tell anybody this, but just choose one for this week. What do you want to feel going into this week? Hmm. Got one? I want to feel inspired. Okay, so where does this leave us? Um, it leaves us into this last part where we can live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus will be proud of, bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and the praise of God. Those fruits of the Spirit coming out of who we are, coming out of our lives and our hearts genuinely and authentically, not just through our words. Who does God call us to be? I loved Rob's sermon a few years back when he was talking about a uh, part from the book of Revelation. And he was talking about who God calls us to be. And he talked about there being three parts of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he talked about what is the role of each of those. And God the Father is the judge. Jesus, his role is to love. And God the Holy Spirit's job is to convict. We are called to be Jesus to the world. We are called to love. We are to be Jesus for others. And to do that, we need to know him. We need to truly know how much he loves us and that he also loves others. And when we truly show that love, then we can shine the light on him authentically. Thank you.